Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined, as usual, by Terry Fakes for the third installment of the Book of Revelation. This is where everything ends, Cole. This is the end, the final end, or maybe the final ends, depending on how you interpret these passages. <laughs> That's true. So, depending on how many comings of Christ there, there are in these next few chapters. I'm actually just a bit proud that we were able to do this in three episodes. I mean, we talked a big talk like we we're going to do it in one at the beginning, but really the fact that we haven't done at least seven episodes on this. That's true. But at least we stayed with the divine number of three. I mean, I, I feel like you, as long as we were three or seven or 12, we were in the spirit of the book. Yeah. If you don't get it in three, you've really got to lengthen it out to get to seven, because if you do four That's or five or exactly. six, that would be, that would not be good. Yeah, you either have a trilogy or you have Fast and Furious franchise. I mean, you've got one or the other here, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I want to I want to do very little, by the way, of recap, because if you've listened to part one and part two, at the beginning of each of those episodes, we've talked about what kind of book is Revelation? What are we looking for in Revelation? What are maybe implicitly, what are some key misconceptions that people have about Revelation? And really spend our time jumping into these last five or six chapters uh, that we weren't able to get to last time. But I always like to recap the four views that we're talking about, just because we're going to throw those out without much, much explanation. And so the, the views are really going to come out clearly in the way that they differ when we get to the millennium. And uh, that's, that's one of, not the only, but one of the parts that highlights the big differences between these four views. So give us a quick rundown of the views before we jump back in. Well, I like to think about the views as trying to answer the question, when are the things in Revelation going to happen? Not if, they all believe that this is true, this is the inspired word of God, but when will these things happen? So a preterist view says these things largely happened early, say the first century AD. The historicist view says, no, actually, these things are a bit of a roadmap all the way from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming what we sometimes call the church age, that this is sort of a roadmap and it has been happening and it, it still is happening right now. The futurist view says, no, actually these events from chapter four on are going to happen in a seven-year period that has yet to happen. It's in the future. And then finally, the fourth view is called idealist or spiritual or symbolic, but it's characterized by the fact that it believes all these things are true, but that they actually can happen over and over, that they may be cycles, that it's more of a symbolic, it's true, it's simply symbolically telling you of many things that have happened, recurring events and recurring truths. So that would be the four major views of, you know, and I like to say, I think really it's not a difference in sincerity, it's simply a different answer to the question of when are these things happening. Right. In the first episode, we talked about the background of the book. We talked a little bit about the genre, apocalyptic literature. What is Revelation trying to be? What's the relationship with the rest of the Bible? In the second, we started moving through the main section. And the book is organized roughly in four big visions or four big scenes that have miniature scenes as a part of them. Chapters one, and one two, and three are the opening scene. This is on Patmos. This is the vision of Christ and the churches, the letters to the seven churches. Then you have a big, the main vision runs from chapter four through the end of chapter 16. So this is the seven seals, the throne room scene before that, the seven trumpets, 
You have the middle section that we talked about last time. This would be the two witnesses, um, the Mm -hmm. beasts in 12 through 15. And then you have the seven bowls beginning in chapter 15 and going through the end of chapter 16. Then in chapter 17, you have John give us the alert that there's going to be something new happening. So it 17 begins, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw, this is a marker that happens four times. I saw in the spirit or I was carried away in the spirit and I saw, and we have a new vision. And this vision runs from chapter 17 all the way into chapter 21, verse nine. And at 21.10, we get another vision in the spirit up on the mountain. And this is where we get the new Jerusalem. So we're going to break this down into two big chunks with a couple of sub points, because the action starts to move pretty quickly here between these visions in the final two sections. The first one is a, a section that runs from 17 through the beginning of 21. And it is almost all about judgment. It is... Basically broken down into four chunks. The first one is the the presentation of the harlot and the and the beast that she's riding on. The second is the fall of Babylon. The third is the proclamation of victory. And then you have the appearance of Christ on the white horse and the white throne judgment in chapter twenty. Um, the big the big thing that we'll talk about in this section is the millennium. The millennium is at the beginning of chapter uh, 20. And we're going to talk about when people think that is, how it relates to the sections around it, and uh, maybe some ways that we can look for some interpretive clues. But I want to start before we get there with this vision of the beast and the harlot. And this is really a stunning scene. So when the spirit shows John this vision, the first thing he sees, it says, is this great prostitute, this great harlot. And she's sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of many blasphemous names. It has seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. This is one of the more confusing sections because it's deceptively complex. On the one hand, it shouldn't be that hard because it says who this is. This is one of the places where you actually get an overt explanation This is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes. Okay, that should be pretty easy. Babylon, constant enemy of Israel, enemies of the people of God. But the more you read this section, the more confusing and the more intriguing it gets. And uh, the first thing I want us to notice is the description of this woman should bring to our memories several other descriptions in the book of Revelation. So we've we've actually seen a woman in a red beast before. This is in chapter 12, when you see the woman who's about to give birth, and, she, and there's a red dragon who is going to devour the child. And the woman goes to the wilderness. Well, now we're in the wilderness, and we see this woman, and we see another red beast. The red beast is not exactly the same, but this should be making us think, okay, maybe there's some similarities going on here. The second Mm -hmm. thing is 
one of the visions right after this, Christ appears in chapter 19, and he is also on a white beast. But the description of Christ and the description of the woman and the things that happen afterwards are almost perfectly in parallel. So you see her, you see her name, you see things written on her, you see her clothing described, you see something she has in her hand. That's the same thing you see with the triumphant Christ who appears, who's riding on a white horse, who has a sword coming out of his mouth, who's going to strike down the nations. You have a lot of similarities here. And so the, the recapitulation crew is going to say, that's because a lot of these things are happening simultaneously. These are just different angles of some of the same phenomena that happen throughout the book. Other views are going to say, well, it's just you've got similar descriptions for some things that are happening in sequence. They're going to be responding to each other. And uh, it really gets difficult when you start to ask, who is the woman? So what are we supposed to take from this symbolic description of this woman? And the first thing is she's sitting on many waters, which is a reference to Jeremiah 51. And that's a description of Babylon. Jeremiah 51 is, a, is the great oracle against Babylon. And uh, it says she has Babylon written on her head. But the question is, what do we do with the rest of the description? So here's two views about how to do this that'll just show you how intricate some of these visions can be. First, she's dressed like a priest. In fact, her, her wardrobe and her cup and the jewels remind you of the high priest garments in places like Exodus and Leviticus. You see the description mm -hmm. of what a priest looks like. This almost looks like she's a high priest. And so what you have on the one hand is somebody like Greg Beal, who in his commentary essentially says, this is a Jezebel kind of figure all the way right. back from uh, the opening chapters of Revelation, all the way back into first Kings, you have Babylon who has made its way into the church, into the religious people. So you essentially right. have Babylon who has infiltrated the true church. And that's why you have Babylon, the great whore dressed up like a high priest. On the flip side, you have Peter Lightheart who says, no, the, the trend for revelation is that Jerusalem has become Babylon. So you know, we, we get these descriptions of the city of Babylon, but we also get, uh, you know, John telling us this is the place where Jesus was crucified. Well, Jesus wasn't crucified in Babylon. He's crucified in, crucified in Jerusalem. So his interpretation is you have Israel who's been dressed down and has become Babylon. So you see that some of the confusion here is everybody knows there's a lot going on, but is it the true church who's been infiltrated by Babylon? Is it Israel, Jerusalem, who has become like Babylon, who's dressed up like Babylon. And what both of these views have in common is the harlot represents people who have sold themselves out in idolatry from the one true God. And one of the points that Lightheart makes that I think is interesting in how to interpret this text is think about what it would mean for one of these entities to be a harlot. Babylon, it would be hard for Babylon to be a harlot because who would Babylon be selling out? Babylon was not in a covenant relationship with God. Whereas in Ezekiel 16, you have Israel portrayed as a woman who was rescued by God, brought into a covenant with him, and then gave herself to other idols. And so if you read it through that lens, you say, well, clearly this is Israel or this is Jerusalem or this is the church. 
But then if you look at it from other angles, these oracles against the great city of Babylon and what's going to follow in chapters 18 and 19, the destruction of Babylon and the similar description to her, this has got to be the powerful kingdoms of the world. So how do you define the fusion? That's that's I, I just spend some time on this to say this is why there are so many disagreements among people who are really reading this text biblically as to what exactly John is saying. The application is pretty similar. But the specific interpretation, even among people who are saying, let's just look at what the Bible might be referring to within itself, can be very difficult. I agree. I think the symbolic view on this probably will help uh, guide people through some of the minimal aspects of this. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, The woman is Babylon, and she's represented as, uh, as you said, she looks like a priest, but she's called a harlot. And in in this kind of literature, sexual immorality, and this is true throughout the rest of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament prophets, is a euphemism for spiritual unfaithfulness. In other words, they are not faithful to God. Uh, Whether or not you're talking about the church or you're just talking about, I, I think from a spiritual point of view or a symbolic point of view, you would say, basically you have the kingdoms of the earth that are arrayed against God that are sitting on the back of Satan are being propped up by Satan, whether that's Babylon or Rome, because there are certain descriptions of her that make you think Rome as well, uh, or an apostate Jerusalem, or the kingdom of the Antichrist in the future, if you're a futurist, his world government, if you will. But Babylon, Rome are archetypes of the kingdoms of the world arrayed against God. And here it's saying they are propped up by Satan. Mm -hmm. So the specifics, I agree, you can disagree. The fundamental idea, and now symbolic point of view would say, this has happened over and over. This vision isn't about one specific thing, or at least not only about one specific thing. It's actually showing you there've been a lot of Babylons and a lot of Romes, and there will be more. So it's not as specific, but I think it helps unify this. I think everyone will agree that we are talking about spiritual unfaithfulness and some kind of world systems here. Now, the question is, is these secular people or is this the apostate church? Is this Judaism that refuses to accept Christ? A lot of flavors, but fundamentally yeah, that's, that's great being opposed to God. Because sometimes it is easy to get wrapped up in all the little details and miss the larger message. And, and, and one thing that the views pretty much share is that the overarching message of, of Revelation is clear. Persevere to the end. The church is going to right. go through trials. People of God are going to be persecuted, but we need to persevere until the end. We need to trust that God is who he says he is. He's going to do what he says he's going to do. The revealing is that things that look hopeless are actually going to lead to God's triumphal victory in the end. And uh, that's the overarching message of every portion of, of the book of Revelation. And then we can take that theme and help interpret some of these more confusing sections. So in chapter 18, uh, the fall of Babylon, the judgment of Babylon happens. And I just want to point out, we're just going to be able to fly over this. I just want to point out how many economic uh, terms and metaphors right. are in here. It, it's pretty pretty clear what the idol of Babylon, whether you think this is ancient Babylon, spiritual Babylon, a future literal Babylonian kind of kingdom, or any Babylon-like kingdom in the world before and after Revelation. 
the idol there is money. The idol there is profit. Right. And that is one of the things that are being that is being struck down in the judgment of Babylon. You see the merchants, the fruit for which your soul long has gone from you, your delicacies and your splendors are lost, never to be found again. And the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment. Alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet adorned with gold. This is very similar to the description of the harlot with jewels mm -hmm. and pearls. In a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. This is the kind of judgment language on Babylon, and it's a little bit different than the judgment language of the seals and the bowls and the trumpets. It's a little bit, it's a little bit more specific. Exactly. I, my only question for you in this, the fall of Babylon, I love this uh, verse 17 in chapter 18, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste, which shows you the overwhelming power and suddenness of God. But I just want to know if your personal opinion, is this referring to COVID or is this referring to high uh, inflation. <laughs> you know, it's funny how many things you, if you, if you're looking for something to come true, you can usually find it. It's, it's not a coincidence that most people that have predicted, uh, you know, hard and fast predictions about when revelation is going to happen. It's It's in their own lifetime. Very few right. people saying, you know what, we're nowhere near it guys. I, I see this happening in 300 years. It's usually it's happening and it's in our lifetimes. Right. Um, and, and I think that gives a little credence to the cyclical themes that are running through this book. Mm -hmm. Now, the, there's rejoicing in heaven in chapter 19. And again, this is where we need to start being sensitive to the timeline that we think is taking place. Are these sequential chronological visions or are they not? Because you have the judgment of the nations of the earth represented by Babylon in some way or another in chapter 18. Then you have rejoicing in chapter 19, like judgment has happened. Uh, so hallelujah, right. salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgment is true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth and uh, has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And then praise God, hallelujah, for the Lord God reigns. Let us rejoice and give glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And you get this wonderful, beautiful description of the bride, which has been arrayed in fine linen, which is the prayers and the righteous deeds of the saints. And uh, John falls down and worships. And again, who the person with him says, you should not do that. I'm fellow servant with you and your brothers. Worship God alone. And then we see heaven open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. This is similar to what we see in chapter one of Jesus being revealed among the churches. And on his head are many diadems, again, in contrast to the, the false glory of the beast. And he judges and makes war. Um, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. There's a big controversy about whose blood this is in a lot of the commentaries. Is it his enemies? Is it his blood? And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is an incredible vision of Christ coming. It is. This is... Uh, a vision of glory that you don't get of the earthly Christ. You see Christ humiliated on earth. And then once he ascends and we see him again, he's glorious and radiant and warlike in this passage. 
And what he's going to do is he's going to judge and he's going to capture the beast and the false prophet. He's going to throw them into the, the lake of burning sulfur. And then he's going to slay the rest. And that rest is kind of an interesting debatable term of who's being slain uh, by the sword that comes from his mouth. And so you have a really profound judgment scene here that Christ has come. He is judging. He is throwing in the beast and the false prophet. And then, and this is what sets up a lot of the confusion, you have a millennial reign beginning in chapter 20. But after the millennial reign, you have Satan released from his prison. He's been bound, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then you have another battle and judgment. And then you have another coming of Christ and and the new city of uh, uh, Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. So if you're going through this and you're saying this seems kind of repetitive, are we talking about several things happening in sequence? Do we have a complete judgment followed by a reign, followed by another judgment? How do we begin to make sense of the millennium? That's a great question. So we'll just put a bit of a period at the end of 19, because what you have is the judgment, the battle of Armageddon. You have two feasts. You have people either going to the wedding feast of the lamb, or they're going to become carrion for the birds of the air. So there are two feasts here. Uh, One is celebratory for God's people. One is condemnatory for those who rebelled against him. In chapter 20, when it comes to this thousand years, Here's here's the issue is typically the views of the millennium of the thousand years. Now, we've got our four major views of when all these things are happening, but there are three particular views of the millennium. And they answer the question, when is Jesus coming in relation to this thousand year reign? Well, if you read this chronologically, you say chapter 20 happens after chapter 19. So you have Jesus coming in chapter 19, and then you have a thousand-year reign. That's called pre-millennial, meaning Jesus comes before pre-the thousand-years reign. And you are going to read this as though it happens in this particular order. If, however, you look at chapter 20 and it says, then I saw, you say, well, that's the particular order of when these visions were written down but it's not the order of when things happen because look at chapter 20, it it appears to recapitulate and retell the story, if you will. And if you say Jesus comes after this thousand years, you have this thousand year reign. And then in chapter 20, Satan rebels, Jesus comes and defeats him. Well, that's a post-millennial view. That means after the thousand year reign. And you're saying, look, that thousand year reign is basically a symbolic term. It's not a literal thousand years, but it's a complete, perfect period of time. That's the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That's when the gospel is in the world. And so Christ will come at the end of that time. And so it would argue that chapter 19, the battle of Armageddon, and this tail end of chapter 20 are the same thing. And so does Christ coming before or after? Depends on if you want to read these sequentially or not sequentially. And then the final is called amillennial. Amillennial is kind of like the symbolic. It says, oh, there's a millennium, but the thousand years is purely symbolic in that the thousand years is going on now and has been going on. And it's not a literal 1,000 year reign. It is more of a symbolic Christ has been reigning and is reigning since the cross. 
So is that helpful Cole, to think about the three millennial views as whether or not you think chapter 20 is recapitulating something or if this is sequentially happening? Right. And there's different verses that people will point to to say, well, this is really a shoe in for the premillennial view or the amillennial view. And I would say the amillennial and the postmillennial view are more similar on this one question in that they both believe in some way or another the church age. So post resurrection and ascension of Christ is the thousand year reign, not a literal thousand years, but uh, a reign of Christ on the earth where Satan is in some way bound. And I think one of the big objections to those views is, what do you mean Satan is bound? If you just look around, it clearly Satan is at work here on the earth right now. He cannot be bound. But it, I think the question is, what what would these texts be implying by saying that he is bound? And what, what would be bound about him? Uh, certainly after the ascension, the fact that people don't stay dead anymore would be a binding of Satan's power. He doesn't have the power over right. death anymore. But if you have a premillennial view or if you have a dispensationalist view, a lot of times um, they take this and say, no, he, he, he really must be bound in the sense that it's the opposite of what happens when he's unbound. So if you go to verse seven and eight of chapter 20, when he's unbound, he's able to deceive the nations again, and he's going to start another, you know, it's kind of like Napoleon coming back from exile and he's going to start mm-hmm. another campaign to take over the world again and that's going to be put down so it's clear that he can't be bound now because the nations are being deceived and they're not worshiping him like they would in the thousand years and so depending on which part of this you put the most weight on it's easy to see why people disagree uh, about the the nature of this thousand years the other thing is there are two judgments that seem very similar in right on either side of the thousand years But if you look at the book as a whole, there are more like six or seven judgments that seem very similar over the course of all of this. Uh, And so some people have pointed to in the recapitulation view, okay, well, when the sixth seal opened, it kind of sounded like this. And the seventh trumpet and the sixth trumpet kind of sounded like this. And the bowls of wrath also kind of sounded like this. And, you know, the judgment of the harlot sounded like this. And now you get two in a row. What's to say that after seeing all of these, that we don't have a summary of this final judgment over and over and over again. And in that case, I don't think that 20 has to come after the thing right before it and, and before the thing right after it in the same way that I don't think chapters five, six, and seven, and then again in chapter nine and not so on right. all had to happen in sequential order because otherwise you get so many tellings of these, what seem like final or semifinal judgments. This is just one more example of things happening concurrently. And that's another that's another way to read this text. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's the that that view that this is not sequential, uh, which doesn't speak, by the way, anything to the truth of Revelation. It just lets Revelation be what it wants to be. The question is, does it want to be a sequential ordering of events, which is how futurists would look at it? And, and or does it want to be a seven-time telling? of the story of rebellion and judgment and the conquest uh, of the kingdom of God over earth. I mean, that, that view is probably becoming more popular in my, in my view to read Revelation more uh, less as a narrative, like a gospel, 
and more is apocalyptic literature with a lot of symbolism. Still true, just trying to speak truth more like a poem would speak truth than like a novel would speak truth. Right. One of the implications there, if you if you read it like that, is what's so what's happening here that we learned that we didn't happen in some of the other recapitulations? You know, wh why do this seven times? What new information do we get? And this is where I think of you like William Hendrickson or uh, G.K. Beale, Greg Beale shares this a little bit mm -hmm. of progressive parallelism is important. Right. But we talked about this kind of like a number line. If you have the, the ascension is one and the end of all things, the true end of all things is 10. These visions, even if they're recapitulating, can often shift a little bit down the number line so that at the beginning, you may have one through seven and then two through seven and then three through eight. And, you know, so you're right. getting closer to the end. They're telling a little bit more of the story each time. And you certainly feel the finality of that, that maybe chapters 19 through the beginning of 21 are like seven through 10, you know, because you don't get a lot of the right. beginning part of it, but you certainly get a more crystal clear telling of the end of things, whereas you have the martyrs who are rising to reign with Christ during the church age, which whenever that is, then at the end, you have another resurrection of the dead being offered up. And so we're getting a lot more detail here about the things surrounding the final judgment than we did maybe in the first telling that was earlier in the book of Revelation, if you want to read it that way. So there is benefit. Uh, it's not all just repeat. There's repeat with enhancement or repeat with a right. little bit different focus or repeat going a little bit further than the last time. And that's another helpful way to take in some of these details and see if you're reading through the whole book, how they match with other sections. Yeah, if you want to think about Revelation as an ancient movie, uh, the images in it are kind of like what we would think of as a movie today. Movies today, you'll see the, the conflict between the good guys and the bad guys throughout the movie, but it typically builds and builds and builds to this big final battle. You don't typically have that in the first five minutes of the movie. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way of introducing you and bringing you along in the story. And so I do think the idea of this uh, progressive parallelism is a compelling idea. I'm not uh, advocating it's the only way to read Revelation, but I think it's a useful thought in reading Revelation. Definitely. It's in 21, you get a, a, another scene that seems pretty final. You see the new heaven and the new earth, first earth, heaven and first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband. So at the end of this section, at the end of verse eight, you have a judgment, you have a final separation you have the consummation of all things in verse seven, the one who conquers, this goes back to the language in the letters to the seven churches. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. This is a promise from the very beginning, Genesis through the Torah, through the prophets, through what the word Emmanuel means that God will be among his people. And that is the final vision of what we were created for. But then you have the final vision. So in verse nine, again, you have, one of the angels spoke to me, come, I will show you the bride of the wife of the lamb. And I was carried away in the spirit and I saw. So again, we get the fourth vision here, right? How we have a fourth vision like this showing us again, what's going to happen with this new Jerusalem when we've already seen what happened with the new Jerusalem is one of two things. It's either a recapitulation or 
It's a sequential zooming in on the details of this new Jerusalem that was just described. And this is where a lot of the views align. Almost everybody agrees on what's going on and when it's going to happen, starting in 21 verse 9, going all the way to the end of chapter 22. Most people think this is the final thing, the final vision of what's going to happen when God restores all things, brings his people to himself, whatever order he does that in, and whatever the rest of the book is talking about, this is where we're going to end up. And there's a lot of agreement here on that. There is disagreement on what all of these symbols mean in this section, but the overarching point is pretty similar. So the bride is coming down. There's a great theme through the book that you can trace with false brides and true brides. The true bride has been made ready. And John is standing on the mountain and he sees the holy city coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel. And it does have jewels everywhere. It has a wall of the city. It has 12 foundations. And the one who spoke has a measuring rod to measure. And remember, this is like Ezekiel measuring his vision of the temple. You measure holy things. Um, And this vision is very similar to that vision at the end of Ezekiel, but it's different in some key ways as well. There's a description of the beauty of the of the new city. There's no temple, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city doesn't have a sun or a moon, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth. This is an interesting little phrase here, if, if the final judgment has already happened. The kings of the right. earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, uh, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We get a little bit further description here in 22, and I just think this is one of the most beautiful passages in the in the whole Bible. The angel shows mm-hmm. me the river of the water of life. This is where we get really strong Garden of Eden imagery again. So the first page of your Bible and the last page of your Bible have a lot of similarities. The river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will, they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. What are the things that stick out to you in these final descriptions of the new Jerusalem? Well, a number of things, but you do see a sense of things with the plan of redemption coming to its end, things coming full circle in a variety of ways. Uh, One would be in chapter 21, you were talking about measuring this new city. And in verse 16, it says this, its length and its width and its height are all the same. Now, does that mean the city's literally a cube? Well, I I think not. But the point is that's significant because if you think about what else in the Bible was a cube, it was the Holy of Holies. And so literally we will actually be with God in the Holy of Holies. And it is the Holy of Holies simply because God himself is there. And so there's this symbolic reference to the idea that this city is where God's people will literally live with him. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's a powerful idea because God in the Garden of Eden, he walked in the garden and he spoke with Adam and Eve. And after the fall, you see 
him recreating, if you will, a holy space. And now the holy space comes full circle. And we once again can see, as it says in uh, uh, chapter 22, we will see his face. Mm. We are back to walking and talking with, with complete intimacy. You know, the whole idea of nakedness versus being clothed. We are now naked in the sense of we have complete intimacy with God. Right. So I think that's a beautiful picture of here are God's faithful people redeemed by Christ coming home to the garden. Or another way to say it is coming into the Holy of Holies. All of those images, you know, being face to face and intimate with God. I just think it's a powerful uh, vision of redemption. And this may be the theme of the Bible that you can attach almost everything to, that God Uh designed humanity to live with him, to to be where he is. But because of sin, they can't be. So what happened in the Garden of Eden is humanity is expelled, like you said, and then God, for the rest of the Bible, the big summary of the Bible is God making a way for his people to dwell with him again. And that basically means creating a way for the presence of God to flow out from the Garden of Eden into the world. And eventually, the new Jerusalem, this new Eden, this developed Eden, what Eden should have been if, if Adam would not have sinned but would have cultivated it and, and, and spread the glory of God throughout the whole earth, you get a picture of what it is like to have a redeemed Eden progress through human history where God really has spread his presence over the entire world. The entire world has become a holy of holies. It has become an Eden. And the picture that we get here is so similar to those things, but so different. So you have not just Adam and Eve walking with God, you have the nations walking with God. You don't just have uh, a couple of trees. Now you have this sprawling tree of life that is bearing fruit all the time. And it's wrapped up over and under the river running down the street in the middle. And so you've seen true development. God has actually progressed things in the world so that they look like a developed and redeemed Garden of Eden. And so the similarities and differences are important to, to note here. Uh, but I think this is the I think this is probably the big overarching theme that connects most of the Bible. That everything God is doing in the Old and New Testament, the coming of Christ, is to achieve this vision that you got on the very first page of the Bible and you don't see completed until the very end of the Bible. And unfortunately, I think it's probably one of the underappreciated themes of the, of the Bible is this dwelling with God theme. The, the expansion of the presence of God to cover the whole earth is maybe an underrepresented theme in most teaching and preaching. I would agree with that. I think uh, this gives you a much bigger perspective on what God is doing than simply God came to the earth to save me. That's true. It's just only a small part of the truth. You know, one thing that I think is interesting, and this is a little off track, but if you trace this all the way back, if you want to think about it this way, you have the descendants of Cain, and you've done some great teaching on the descendants of Cain and cities, and, uh, you know, the whole idea of cities are not good things in the Bible until now the new Jerusalem, when it's been redeemed, if you will. So you get the descendants of Cain, the rebels, and then you get the descendants of Enoch, uh, you know, the the faithful line, if you will, of Adam. And of course, you get Jesus as the new and better Adam. And here you see the end 
of the line of rebels. And you see the destiny of those who are faithful to God. And so as humanity splits because of sin in the garden, you see the end of those two stories. And that's where, you know, Paul can say uh, where the wages of sin is death. Well, we're actually seeing what that death looks like now. And it's that eternal separation from God and the gift of grace is uh, the gift of eternal life. And you're seeing the eternal life. It's just interesting to see how so many threads in the Bible come together. And I think you're right. I, I think instead of ignoring the book of Revelation, we should probably preach a lot of the Bible from the viewpoint of chapter 21 and 22. That would really liven up the preaching of the word, I think, is instead of yeah. looking at it from fallen humanity, let's look at it from chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation and preach it from there. I agree. I think your preaching and teaching should take you to the end of Revelation often because you're deriving how we see the world now from where we know the world is headed. So we know right. the destination, we know the shape of what's to come. And I think often we think of the world more in terms of Genesis three, like you're saying, a, a fallen world. And we should right. we should preach toward the end we know is coming for the right. universe, which is this consummation of our life with God forever. And of course, there's little things that can be tricky here. There's ways that are harder than others to get to this point and to interpret it. But even in the visions in the book of Revelation that show the worship and the triumph of God, the judgment of Christ, the exaltation mm -hmm. of the people of God to be with him forever. We, we should find ourselves going there often in our devotional life, in our praise, in our worship, because that is where we're headed. I mean, this, this is without a doubt a clear portion of the Bible. This is how things are going to end up, is we are going to be with God, seeing him face to face with his name written on us, forever and ever. And, and that should be something that's very comforting for us right now. And, you know, the way the book right. of Revelation ends is a little bit curious for the way that we, that we sometimes think of Revelation as being this tricky book to understand. It basically ends by saying, I want you to write these things down and I want you to tell everybody about them, which is in direct mm -hmm. contrast to what you see in the book of Daniel, for example, where it says, hey, Daniel, seal up this book until the time right. is right. Well, now... He says in verse 10 of chapter 22, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about these things. And the, the big command at the end, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is an open offer to partake of what you see here. And that's an offer that was made in the first century. And it's an offer that we make today. And it's an offer that will be made until this actually happens. When if you're in, you're in. And right. if you're out, you're out. And if you're in, you'll enjoy the presence of God forever. And we want to be pushing people towards that evangelistically in our discipleship, the great commission, the great commandment are all pointing towards this end. And we should remember that as we teach and preach these things, we know the trajectory of history. We know the trajectory of faith. We know the trajectory of the church. And uh, this is it. Let the, the, the spirit and the bride say, come, let anybody who hears come, let anybody who's thirsty come and anybody who desires can take of the water of life without price. That's really our message that we're preaching. 
I, I agree. You know, sometimes I think it's easy for us to think of the gospel, the good news, the story that we have to tell of what Jesus did as a remedy for Genesis 3. And that's not untrue, but I think it's the wrong way to look at it. We tend to think of the gospel saved me, saved us from our fallenness. That's a true statement, but really the Bible looks more forward than backward. And so we are saved to worship like this. We are saved to be intimate with God like this. And so I agree with you, Cole. I think look at the gospel as eschatological, meaning the gospel isn't just coming from fallen humanity. It's actually going to intimacy with God. And I think we uh, we would do better to think more about what we're becoming rather than what we've left. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.